0: So as I said, when we started today, it's Palm Sunday. It's the first day of Holy Week, and it's, it's a day every year, every year this day comes around in Holy Week, uh, and we celebrate it. We celebrate the triumphal entry, which means we also basically preach uh, one of, you know, it's only three, there's only four passages really to preach from, and so it gives pastors, gives me a little bit of an existential crisis as I was preparing this week. I was like, man, I've already preached this three times. Now what? I feel like I have to say something new, right, to keep everybody, like, uh, excited. But, and then it dawned on me, the gospel, uh, gospel's not new, gospel's old, (laughs) praise God, and it doesn't change. And not only that, because of the spirit that inhabits it, it is new every single time we hear it. So that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about, uh, what Jesus was doing walking into Jerusalem that day because it is one of the clearest parts in the gospel where Jesus, after a long delay, after strategically limiting the knowledge of him in his ministry, after deliberately staying on the outskirts, he walks into the center of power and proclaims himself for who he really is. And, and that proclamation of who he is and our response to it is one of the heaviest parts of the gospel, and it speaks to our experience in life as well. So, would you please stand? Let's read from Luke, chapter 19, verses 28 through 44. This is God's inerrant word. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. And so those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, the owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, And glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, these were silent. The very stones would cry out. And when when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the day will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground and you and your children within you and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. One of my favorite stories from World War II is the story of the Doolittle Raid. Uh, not a whole lot of people really know about it, but right after the aftermath of Pearl Harbor, when America was stunned and shocked that a foreign power had the, had the ability to decimate, completely decimate, a military base, uh, there was a pilot named Jimmy Doolittle that came up with this crazy plan to fly B-25s off the deck of an aircraft carrier uh, and, and on a bombing raid to Japan. However, the problem was this had never been done before uh, and it was inherently, it was incredibly dangerous. The plan was basically strip the B-25s of every possible ounce of weight so that we could load them up with enough fuel to get so that we could sneak close enough to Japan for the bombers to take off, make their bombing runs and then hopefully make it over the East China Sea and ditch their planes on the beach in China where they would then try to find friendly Chinese locals in the midst of a uh, Japanese-held territory and then somehow finally make it to safety. Uh, And if that wasn't bad enough, as they were making their approach, 200 miles before they got to their takeoff point where they barely had enough fuel, they were spotted. And they had to make the call, do we take off, do we abort the mission? And they decided to go for it. And they did it. And all, uh, all the planes ended up crash landing, except for one, on the shore of China. And the thing is about that mission was that it didn't really do a whole lot of damage. It wasn't a lot of physical damage that done. What was done was, the purpose of it, uh, was to really just encourage and bring hope to, to the American people. And in the course of that, nobody was really told a lot of specifics about the mission. They weren't told how dangerous it was. They weren't told the specifics of it. They were just told that this bombing run had been successful on the Japanese mainland. They didn't tell uh, people that it was essentially a suicide mission that all of these pilots had agreed to go on. Only they knew. No one else really knew how dangerous it uh, this mission really was. Now, why am I telling you that story about the Doolittle raid? You know, when we see this story, we read this story, and we hear all the disciples crying out praises to God uh, and cheering Jesus as he enters the city. We immediately think victory. This is a victory parade. This is a. Uh, uh, the fulfillment of prophecy this is the culmination of all of the Old Testament. All the disciples are cheering him, and it looks it completely looks from the outside perspective to all the crowds on the road that victory is here and has arrived to Jerusalem and for god 's people. But the reality is what Jesus knew what the apostles knew was that it was essentially a suicide mission. The apost- Jesus. All the way uh, to in his march towards Jerusalem in this part of Luke's gospel is always presented as walking ahead of his disciples. And Luke brings that out on purpose because the disciples are terrified. They know and we know even from the gospel records and also from archaeology that the Jewish officials had put out a death warrant on Jesus they had, given, they had offered cash rewards for anyone who could tell them where he was so they could arrest him and put him to death. And his disciples knew that. So when Jesus said, we're going to Jerusalem, their first thought was, you're crazy. That's a death mission. What they didn't know uh, was that that was true. That was Jesus' purpose. The purpose of that marching in to Jerusalem, the triumph, That he accomplished in that was not really a suicide mission as much as it was a deicide mission. He walked in to be put to death by his own people. And nothing was going to stop him from doing it. Not the mixed motives and and wayward hearts of his disciples not the misappropriation of the crowds that were trying to use him for their own ends, not the Pharisees who were committed to destroying him. Nothing was going to stop him from doing what he came to do. And so he didn't need any of those things. And what that tells us, what this story tells us, the big idea is that our mixed motives, our wayward hearts cannot overpower the compassionate heart and covenant faithfulness of Jesus our mixed motives, our wayward hearts, cannot overpower the compassionate heart and the covenant faithfulness of jesus. Look, look at that one part at a time: our mixed motives and our wayward hearts. Uh, when I was in China uh, a couple weeks ago, I was off sh- uh, shopping in this uh, shopping this Chinese uh, shopping center basically a pedestrian shopping center where you walk in there's all these ancient shops really shops that dated back to the even to the 1400s where the emperors had set up these like candy shops to create candies for their kids and for their wives and whatnot and 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 I was looking for uh, a knife I was looking for a Chinese cooking knife and there was a shop there that was hundreds of years old I was trying to find and in the course of that we ended up going to this jewelry store that uh, had all, all this jewelry in it. And, I, and I, I bought, it had some jewelry and it had tourist, uh, you know, souvenirs and what. So I bought about 10 Chinese opera magnets to give to people. And every time you bought something in the store, they give you this little lottery ticket that you would scratch off. And the top prize for the lottery was that you, got, you won anything you wanted out of the jewelry case that they had on display. However, you had to pay an 8% surcharge for the tax. And so I'm, look, I'm in China, and uh, I mean, China makes a lot of great stuff, but they also happen to be the capital of counterfeit goods for the world, right? I'm in Beijing. I had just been shopping at Silk Road Pearl Market, which specializes in everything counterfeit you can possibly imagine. And so when my, anyways, we, we, we scratched the tickets off and we won. I won, top prize. I, get to, I got to pick any of this jewelry in the case. And so my first thought was, this is all counterfeit. There's no way they would do that. It's fake. I'm not going to fall for it. They're not going to get my 40 bucks for, you know, $500 piece of jewelry. And then my second reaction was self-serving. I was like, wait a minute. It might be fake, but nobody has to know that. And this is going to score me some big... Points with the wife. And my third reaction was mixed motives. We bought it, and I was leaving. I told my uh, my tour guide, my translator. I said, "You know what just happened?" I said, "I said, you know, I'm a church planner back home, and you know that." pastor's wives, especially church planners' wives, have the way harder job, and it's completely unsung, and what God just did was he just hooked my wife up in a big way with this beautiful piece of jewelry, and I totally knew that to be true, and I gave praise and glory to God, and at the same time, I thought to myself, yes, I saved a bunch of money, and this is going to score me points with my wife, <laughs> mixed, <laughs> mixed motives. Now why do I tell you that? When Jesus walks into Jerusalem, there's three groups of people on the road and they have three different reactions to Jesus. The first are the Pharisees. They see Jesus as a fake. He's a counterfeit. It's a scam. They reject him and they want nothing to do with him. Why? They, they come up. When Jesus gets to them, all his disciples are praising God and the Pharisees see this and they are they are offended that these people are praising Jesus as the son of David and they tell, they look at Jesus and they go, and they're shocked. They say, teacher, rebuke your disciples from saying this. And in in a beautiful, wonderful, ironic statement, he says, "If if they were to be silent, the very, these inanimate stones, all creation would sing out of my glory. Saying you, the teachers of Israel who should know better, who have all of, the, all of the resources necessary to understand what is happening right now are dumber than these rocks. All of your theological education, all your advanced degrees have been nullified because what's important to you is holding on to your power. And that's what they say straight up. They say we must destroy this man because if we don't destroy him Rome is going to come in and take away our power and our privilege and we cannot allow that to happen It's a warning for us whenever we feel that our power and privilege might be being taken away we can check ourselves and wonder if we are worried about the gospel or are we worried about us? Uh, and the tragedy is what they're, what they're afraid of. There's a proverb that says what the wicked fear will become upon them. And what they're saying is, what, what that proverb is saying and what's happening to those, to those Pharisees is that they, they believe that their sin is going to bring them salvation and it causes them to reject the only thing that possibly can. They're holding on to their sin, believing that that's what they need to be okay and in the process rejecting the only hope they have. I remember that clearly prior to being a Christian. I was terrified of coming to Christ, terrified of admitting that Christianity might be true because I knew what it was going to cost me and I didn't want to do it. Second group is the crowds. Luke doesn't really focus on the crowds so much. This one verse uh, where he might be talking to them, but the other, really, the other gospels have to fill this in. On the road, it talks about all these multitudes waving palm branches in the air uh, and laying their cloaks down in front of Jesus on the donkey as he as he walks on the colt of the donkey as he as he as he moves into Jerusalem. And from the outside. Uh, 21st century perspective, we look at that and go, wow, that's a a show of honor, isn't that great? But when we understand the history behind it, those were all things that the Hebrew people did for their kings, for the Davidic, earthly uh, kings of Jerusalem. And so when they're out there waving the palm branches and putting the cloaks down, all they're recognizing in Jesus is that he's the guy who's going to come in power, kick the Romans out, and make their lives better. He's going to increase. He's going to improve the economy. He's going to. He's going to close their borders down. He's going to make uh, Israel safe. That's all they're really concerned about. These. There's no heavenly aspect in it at all. Uh, and the third group is the disciples. Third group is the disciples. Look at verse 37, second part of the 37 and 38. This is what they do. They, the whole multitude, and Luke specifies, of his disciples. These are, it's not just the 12. Uh, this is a feast day in Jerusalem and tons of people are coming in from Galilee where he had done all of his miracles. Uh, and so there was a much bigger group than just the 12 of his disciples at this time that were following him. And so all the disciples shout out, uh, the whole multitude of his disciples begin to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen were saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Man, it's so good they said that last verse. Because up to that point, they're saying, they're, worse, they're, they're, they're calling out Jesus as the king, the Davidic king. Uh, they're probably, part, it says that they are part of the people who are putting the cloaks out in front of Jesus, welcoming him as the messianic king. And if it stopped there, you'd have to be worried. What do these people really think about Jesus? But then they say, peace in heaven. They recognize this isn't peace for Jerusalem. They recognize that this is the peace of heaven, the reconciliation of God and man that's occurring. They don't have all the pieces together on it, but they know it's more than just an earthly king coming in in earthly power to kick out the Romans and they praise God for it. They have mixed motives. They have wayward hearts. They're praising God. They're also thinking about what's in it for them. And listen, why am I I going through these categories? I wish there was a fourth category I could show you (laughs) of the super faithful (laughs) The, the, the enlightened disciples who were just faithfully marching behind Jesus praying, praising God and reciting the Westminster Confession of Faith Doctrine of Justification. But there isn't. You know why? Because three is about as good as it gets, man. That's us. And all of our theological precision and all the things we think we do right we still are plagued with mixed motives and with wayward hearts. At the same time, we are looking to the new creation. And we are. We really are. But at the same time, and I'm talking about me right now, I am looking for the new creation and that is where my hope is in. And yet at the same time, I am mad at God this week because of stuff that's going on in this creation that I don't think should be happening to me. (laughs) And I'm mad at him about it. Why? Because God is wrong? Uh, Because God is unfaithful? No, it's because my heart, I got mixed motives. I got wayward heart. I can't, I don't have the power to completely trust God. It's mixed up. And you know, and the remarkable thing, why am I bringing this all out, is that pretty much in any other religious system, as the religious leader approached, and that was the three categories, outright rejection, using for your own purpose, and mixed motives and wayward hearts, that would pretty much be the end of it. They would shut it down. Call me when you're ready to go, Jerusalem. Here's a list. Get this down, and we'll try this again. But that's not what happened. You know, we said in the reading of the gospel today, Jesus came not for the righteous, but for sinners. And so none of that fazed him. That's why he came, because he knew that was true about us. And so it shows us that our mixed motives and wayward hearts cannot overpower the compassionate heart of God. And that's what we see happen in this we see God displaying to us what He's really like. His heart is full of compassion for us. Look at uh, verse. Uh, look at verse forty-one. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, "Would that you even you had known on this day the things that make for peace! But now they are hidden from your eyes." There's two times in the gospel, or two times in the gospels, where Jesus weeps. The first one is over his friend Lazarus. Uh, and if you read the story and you fill it out, it's not—he's not just weeping because his friend is dead. Although that's part of it, it's a whole—he's—he's he's incredibly in tune with the whole complex of suffering that Lazarus' death has, ca- has caused. He's very in tune with Martha's suffering and Mary's suffering and the the unnatural separation that death has caused uh, and just how the power of sin has wreaked havoc in the lives of these people that he desperately loves and out of being overwhelmed by that reality and the suffering that he sees these people in, he breaks down and he cries. Jesus, the God-man. Uh, and here... If we read it in English and it says, "Jesus wept," and we think... little tear." but that's not what the word means. The word really means It means wailing. It means uncontrollable sobbing. Uh, you think of m- funeral, Middle Eastern funerals. Uh, the tradition is that you weep and wail and mourn out loud, loudly. Uh, and that's what Jesus is doing here. That's what that means. He stops in the middle of all of this praise, of all of these accolades, and all of this glo- all of these praises for him and for God, and he stops short of the gates of Jerusalem, and he bursts into tears. Imagine that scene. I wonder if people kept singing through it or if they, uh, what they saw, and I'm sure they did because he was the focus of attention, they saw him just break down and, 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 and wail and mourn and sob as he cried out, as he cried out about the suffering of Jerusalem that would come, about, about the consequence of sin that was going to necessarily happen. He was, as God and as man, experiencing that, was literally undone by it. Undone by the suffering of sin in the world. Not over his rejection. Jesus is not the loser here. He's Wailing for the same reason he wept over Lazarus. He's acutely aware of the suffering and destruction of sin in the world, and it overcomes him. Now, there's a couple of lessons for us in that. Really, you know, smaller one. Is that how we see sin? Do we have a deep mourning for our own sin? Do we have a deep mourning for the sin that we see in the world? And do we cry out to God for healing and restoration? All too often, my first response about sin, especially against me, is a desire for retribution. I want you to suffer. I want you to feel my pain. Uh, but that's not the heart of God. That's not the heart of God that's put on display for us here. Jesus is overwhelmed by our sin. And the, the big lesson the big lesson for us in this is that in the midst of all of this mixed motives, wayward hearts, straight up rejection, people just using him for their own advancement, none of it phases him. None of it phases Jesus. He doesn't reject, he doesn't turn around and call the whole thing off. Uh, instead he does the most amazing thing. You know what he does? He walks into Jerusalem. He continues the mission. It's the third thing. That one reality just haunted me all week. I meditated and prayed and put this together. That is so remarkable that in the midst of all that, what does God incarnate do? What does that teach us about God? He doesn't call the show off. All of that doesn't even phase him. Instead, He continues with the mission, because that was the mission from the beginning. Now, why is everybody in such an uproar? Why is it they see him on a colt, on the foal of a donkey, and everyone loses their minds? Why is that? Because they all know of a prophecy in the book of Zechariah. They're all seeing Jesus walk in on this colt, and their minds immediately go to Zechariah chapter 9, where it it says this, speaking to God's people. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, And as for you, also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. And everybody thought they knew what the mission was. As they saw Jesus coming in to Jerusalem, mounted on a donkey, their minds hit Zechariah 9-9. Everybody... All the crowds are convinced what's happening here is that Jesus has come and he is about to make Jerusalem great again. He is going to solve all their earthly problems, he is going to create a great new economy for them. Uh, But listen listen to what they just did, listen to what this verse says. Everybody thinks Jesus is coming as a warrior king, to kick the Romans out, to make war on the nations. And what does the verse say? So all they hear is this. They hear, uh, they hear um, behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth, praise God. And what did they cut out? What, what Systematically, what did their mind blank out on as they read over it? that he comes humble, mounted on a donkey, not a war horse, that's important, uh, that he's coming to cut off the chariot from Ephraim, that's Israel, and, to, and the war horse from Jerusalem. He's coming, uh, the prophecy says, to cut out the warfare of Israel. Why? So he can speak peace to the nations. That's a rem- that, that should blow our minds. I mean, we know that to be true, but here's an example in Scripture of an entire nation of people who glazed over all of the uncomfortable parts of Scripture in order to focus on the pieces of Scripture in that puzzle that really fit what they wanted Jesus to be. And they don't do it. It's not just them who does that. We all do it. We all glaze over the parts of Scripture that convict us. We all glaze over the parts of Scripture that talk about our sin. Uh, in, our, in our class today, Anthony was talking about we get up here uh, in white churches and we talk about abortion. We talk about uh, same-sex marriage and it sins out there. And we're like, yes, preach. We talk about racism in the church. Whoa whoa, buddy, why don't you just preach the gospel? Why? Because now that's talking about us. It's talking about our sin. And our minds, our fallen nature, causes us to glaze over those parts of Scripture that are uncomfortable for us to hear. It happened to them, and it happens to us. And this should give us great pause. But here, this is what's amazing about this. The last verse, when it says, As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Uh, That verse is pulling out from Exodus 24. Exodus 24. Moses, had, we had assembled all the people of God uh, and he went through, a, they read the book of the law. Let me read it to you. Let me read it to you. This is from Exodus 24. It says, Then Moses, he takes the book of the covenant and he read it, read it in the hearing of all the people, all the law, read it all over all the people and they all stand and heard it. And then they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. And then, Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Did they do that? We look at the history of Israel. Could you legitimately, as a first century Israelite, read Zechariah nine, 9 and say the blood of the covenant? Ooh, that's actually bad news. Because we didn't keep the law. We've never kept the law. That blood upon us is the blood of condemnation. We have broken the law and can expect nothing but God's war upon us. No, they didn't keep the law. And Jesus is walking into the heart of that rebellion and that rejection knowing full well what he's doing. What is he doing? A week later, Jesus talks about the blood of the covenant again, and this time in the Last Supper, where he says, and he took the bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood? It's the new covenant in my blood, and so Jesus knows what He's doing when He comes in on the foal of a donkey. He knows He's playing out, He's living out that prophecy from Zechariah. But His message is, is He's bringing a new covenant that it's not uh, the blood of bulls and goats that take away sin. It's not our obedience to the covenant of God that wins our righteousness with Him because that can never be. But instead, He's saying, I'm going to the cross. The reason I've come to Jerusalem, the reason I'm not phased by all of your wayward hearts and mixed motives, is because that's why I came. That's the purpose for this. The mission is to offer the solution for that. That doesn't matter. What matters is that Jesus marched into Jerusalem into a suicide mission, a deicide mission on purpose so that he as our high priest and as our sacrifice could offer himself up on the cross of the altar, the altar of the cross and offer the new blood of the covenant, Jesus' blood shed for us that completely takes away our sins, that completely washes us from all of our iniquity and makes us perfectly new and holy in God's sight. Uh, What we could never do, weakened by sin, God did for us in Jesus. And that was his mission. And that's why he didn't turn around in the midst of all that chaos. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for... No, we thank you that you didn't turn around. More than that, Lord, we thank you that you came and that you suffered everything that you suffered in your earthly life because you knew how sinful we were and how helpless we are and that we would never have been able to fulfill the law. We would never have been able to make ourselves righteous. We would never, ever have been able to come to you. And so you had to come to us and give us everything, everything required for salvation. So we thank you, Lord. We thank you for your righteousness. We thank you that you knew full well what you were doing when you walked into Jerusalem. We thank you that you went through with it. And we thank you for your Holy Spirit that teaches us that these things are true so that we could rest in you, Lord. And that's our prayer. That's my prayer on this Palm Sunday, Lord. I pray that you would help us to put down the palm branches of all of our idols and to lift our hands in simple praise for you, as the King who conquered sin and death and the kingdom of hell and brought us righteousness and peace in heaven forever. Lord, let us worship and praise you in this way. In Jesus' name, amen.